everybody. The Fairly Spiritual Show is coming up. I'm Doug Bursch. So, the perfect church. Is it possible? Is it possible to have a perfect church in such a broken world? Well, on today's show, I'm going to talk about elements that I think need to be in every church, regardless of how broken this world really is. I also want to share with you a very sacred story. The time I watched a church die before my eyes. The sacredness of the church. Can we be perfect when everything is so broken? Fairly Spiritual, coming up next. They say that I cannot do what you've called me to. It is not possible, unattainable. I will never see it through, but you've spoken by your word, your Holy Spirit's leading me. You are my only one, you're the only one worth living for, so I'm dreams with you. This is the Fairly Spiritual Show. I'm Doug Bursch, and I'm so glad you could listen. Uh, on today's show, we're going to give some hopefully good advice. <laughs> I hope it's good advice. I've been spending the last uh, few shows, in fact, the last 14 shows, uh, looking in-depthly at community, uh, some of the problems with community, some of the strengths of community, uh, going through uh, the book that I just uh, released called The Community of God, A Theology of the Church from a Reluctant Pastor. And today is a special show where I'm going to look at, uh, to me, some of the answers to community that must be present in every church, regardless of the church, regardless of the denomination, regardless of how you structure the gathering, stuff that needs to be present. I know, Mom, stuff is not a good word. My mom is an English expert, and uh, she would say, Doug, don't use stuff. Don't use the word thing. Uh, but there are things and stuff that need to be present in every church, regardless of how it's structured. If you've been listening to the show, and if you follow um, my writings or the way I speak or, or just what I'm passionate about, I'm less concerned with the kind of church community you structure. You want to meet in a big cathedral, that's great. You want to meet in a house church, that's great. Uh, but I am concerned that we need to have a biblical understanding of community. As we've gone over this concept, you'll see that uh, community is not a secondary issue when it comes to God's plan for humanity. Community is how we understand who we are as humans. Community is how God advances his purposes on earth. Community is central to understanding our purpose as Christians, our purpose as human beings. And so uh, in the book, The Community of God, in chapter 15, I, I lay out just some ideas of what I believe every church should have uh, in it to be successful. And successful not in terms of being a mega church or a growing church, but just regardless of what happens in this world, because we don't know what's going to happen in this world. This world might become more and more individualistic, but regardless of the individualism in this world, we must structure our church gatherings to be biblical. 
they must be structured uh, in a way that it can be identified with what the Old and New Testament calls biblical community or Christian community. And so I'd like to look at some of those things today, and I would love for you to be able to pick up this book, and you can go into it in more detail. You can pick it up at Amazon. There's an Audible version if you want uh, me to read you the book, to serenade you. You can get that at Audible. You can go to my website, fairlyspiritual.org, and find more information. I'd also love it if you'd subscribe to the podcast, so you can subscribe on iTunes. Now, before I get to some of the things that I think need to be in every church, some of the key realities that every church needs to address, regardless of whether you meet in a home or you meet out in the woods or you meet in a cathedral. I want to share with you a very sacred moment that happened in my life. And uh, I I just need to share this with you so you know my heart. I I don't want to be a know-it-all, although I am a know-it-all. You know know that in the sense of I got opinions and I think my opinions are right. And no no matter how I share them in the most kind and thoughtful way. There's a part of me that's still like, yeah, I think this is right and that's wrong. And so as a pastor, as someone with a lot of opinions, I can come off as a know-it-all. And even saying, you know, a church should have this and a church should have that and the church should be this, there's a real danger there of just sounding like a Pharisee or sounding like someone who's incredibly critical of current church structures. And so before I talk about any of that stuff, I want to share one of the most sacred things that has ever happened to me in my life. And it's this moment when I saw a church die. I had a good friend of mine. Uh, he was a little older than me. Oh, he was a little older. He's still a little older than me. But he was older than me in ministry. He'd been pastoring longer. And when I became a pastor in my city, he welcomed me into the city. He pastored about 15 minutes away from me. Just a, a neat man of God. And although he's older than me, he never talked down to me. Some pastors will just kind of talk down to you. They always give you advice, but they never treat you like a contemporary. They never want your advice. They they just kind of are always giving you advice. And he wasn't someone like that. He truly treated me like a contemporary. He valued my perspective. I valued his perspective. And he was of incredible help to me, just encouraging me along the way. Well, he was a church planter, and that the term church planter... Uh, or sometimes people use the term church pioneer, it means that he started a church. He started a church within, I think it was by himself, and then he brought it into a denomination. And and he had started this church, and for uh, several years, I don't, I don't know how many years it was, I don't know if it was seven or eight or nine years, but he had faithfully pastored this group of people. Church planting is incredibly hard. It's, it's not easy to do. And many church plants uh, eventually close. It's just hard to get to the point or you can make it. Uh, you don't usually have your own building. You're often meeting in a school or some rented facility. You move from place to place. You often meet at awkward times, you know, Saturday nights and Sunday nights, and, and it's just hard. It's difficult. There's lots of transitions. There's loading up a trailer and setting up and tearing down, and you're trying to build a team, and it's just difficult. And for every success story in that, you know, we grew to 2,000 and we became this established, amazing church in our community, for every one of those stories, there's many other stories where it's really a challenge. Well, for my friend, he had been faithful. He and his wife had faithfully pastored this church and faithfully really invested their energy, their best energy in this church. And the other thing that happens is it's not all all about the individuals, right? They had been in a situation where a bunch of things happened that were completely outside their control. Things 
outside their control, where building things outside of their control, landlord things outside their control, denominational things outside their control, where literally event after event, situation after situation brought them to this place where after much prayer, they realized they needed to close their church. And and I know sometimes people get upset when you say their church. I know it's God's church. I'm just using that term, the church they served. I know it's God's church, but they had invested in this church. <laughs> they were the ones who were always there to set up and take down. They had invested all kinds of their money. I mean, if you get around any church planner and you look around like half that stuff they paid for out of their own pocket and, and they... They weren't making any money off of this. They, you know, took out debt. You know, I mean, they, they were investing their lives. They could have worked somewhere else and made way more money. They, were, they weren't in it for the money. They weren't in it for the fame. They'd invested their lives in this church. But they got to this point where it just wasn't going to continue. And they knew that the Lord had called them to close the church. Now, I, I was you know, friends with them, and I spent a bit of time talking. Both of them pastored, the husband and wife, but I would hang out more with the man, and we, we would connect and talk. And, and he didn't tell me he was going to close the church. He had talked about he was going to need to do something, but he didn't tell me, Doug, I'm going to close the church this week. He didn't say that to me. And I know he didn't tell me that because I would have tried to talk him out of it. I mean, he wouldn't have let me talk him out of it, but I know it had just been awkward because I'm the kind of guy like, oh, no, you can still do this and you can make a way. And, and I just would have made it more complicated. So he was meeting on a Saturday night and I just showed up to the church service. And if I had known what was going to happen, if I knew they were going to close the church, I wouldn't have shown up because I would have thought, you know, this is, you know, I don't want to be there. It's their kind of family event. It'll look kind of awkward. They're closing a church. If I show up on the day they're closing, I just... And maybe they'll think I'm trying to recruit people. It just seemed weird. Like I wouldn't have shown up. You know what I mean? I just wouldn't have gone there. It's a special family event. I don't want to be a part of that and get in the way. But I showed up unannounced. Didn't know they're going to close the church. So I showed up. I got in there and I, I came a little late, which is really lousy as a pastor, but I did. I came a little late. And he had just announced that the church was closing. And he talked about that we're closing the church and we're going to make sure that we find a church home for every one of you. And at that time, I don't know how many people were in the room. I don't know if it was 50 or 70 or 80 people. But it just sounded like a chorus of weeping. People were just audibly sobbing and weeping around the church just sobbing and weeping and crying, just crying out. It, it, it was, it was, it just, just went right to my heart. It was, it was more intense than anything I'd really ever heard before. It was as if something was dying right before us and something was dying right before us. They were weeping at the death of a church all the amazing things they had done, all the times they had prayed together and laughed together and worshipped together and shared their life together and all the miracles and all the joys and all the sorrows and the, the weddings and the funerals and all of it was dying. Now hear me, it, it doesn't mean that all the good suddenly died and went away, but there clearly was an end to this. 
It didn't mean that they weren't going to have friendships. It didn't mean they weren't going to stay connected. But it definitely meant that this expression, this church, was dying. Like a loved one that you were at their deathbed and, and you were no longer going to see them. When I was there and watching this and it was just overwhelming my heart, I felt the Lord said to me something very powerfully. He just said, I want you to sit on my lap, Doug, and I want you to watch this. This is sacred. I just saw that the Lord said, sit on my lap and watch this. This is sacred. My church is sacred. And I saw it so strongly, the Lord was like, my church is sacred. Don't you ever look at any church as not sacred. Don't you ever discount any expression of the body of Christ. This room of 50 or 60 people that others discount, that others might say it's insignificant, that others might even see as a failure, this is a sacred place. This is the most sacred place on the face of the earth. I want you to love and value and respect my bride. Respect my church. It was so strong. I, I from that I, I will never forget that. I'll never, you know, I, I pastor a church that has about a hundred people on a good day that show up for church. There's, you know, more there. I don't know how many people are associated. Some, you know, they haven't seen them in a while. They come and they go. We're not very legalistic on that. You know, we love them when they're there and we let them go where they want to go and come when they want to come. But we're no mega anything. And I know like within my denominational setting, I'm a nobody when it comes to that. I'm not, I'm not going to be platformed as somebody special when it comes to how to grow a church. But I know that that expression is sacred. I know that whenever you facilitate any room where people can come together, where strangers can build friendships, where people can come together and worship the Lord and bless one another, that it's sacred and that we should contend for those things. I don't have any problem with people wanting to reform the church and speak out a bit against injustices, but we're also supposed to contend for the bride and encourage those who are trying their hardest to bless the church. And right now I know there's pastors out there who are just laying down their lives, families, husbands and wives, barely making it, barely surviving, pastoring a church, 30, 40, 50, 60 people, suffering all kinds of conflicts and struggles and accusations, doing sacred work. There's very little respect from the culture for them, very little respect on social media for them, but what they're doing is sacred. I saw it in that moment as that church died, and I understood that I'm supposed to contend for the church and the beauty of the church and let every pastor know that what they do is sacred and beautiful in the eyes of the Lord. Now, I say all that to remind you that when I talk about how churches can improve the way they talk to one another or how we can improve the way we facilitate community, I'm not coming in as some jerk that's constantly saying what's wrong with the church and flippantly talking about how every church is wrong and the majority of the church is doing this and all that kind of arrogant, egotistical stuff that I hear out there. I'm talking as a fellow brother 
in Christ, who loves the body of Christ. And I'm giving you my two cents as I've studied the Word, as I've spent time looking at the Scripture, as I've spent my time pastoring, and as, as I pastor. These are the things I think we need to contend for if we're going to have healthy churches. I spent a lot of time coming up to this point, even the last 14 weeks, talking about community and what the Scripture says about community. And in light of the things we've studied, here's what I think every church needs to have if it's going to be healthy. One of the first things, if you're taking notes, by the way, if you're driving and taking notes, very dangerous, probably shouldn't do that, probably should pull over to the side of the road. If you're jogging and taking notes, again, jogging and riding and texting and typing, difficult phenomenon to do. If you're riding your bike, again, I don't know if you can do two things at once, but here's the first thing. If you're going to be a healthy church, a healthy expression of the church, we have to abandon the myth of the perfect church. We have to abandon that myth. We all know that sin affects the individual. We all know that sin affects, like you know in your own life that there's areas of your life that are not in control, that there's areas of your life that even though you've, you've dealt with, with the Lord and you know they're not right and you know you need help and you know there's grace for it, but there's areas that, that aren't right. There's areas of anger, there's areas of temper, there's, areas, there's sin areas in your life that are just not right, the way you treat others. Well, just as sin affects the individual, sin affects communities. And sin will always affect communities. And although we shouldn't justify sin and excuse sin, you are never going to find a community that doesn't have expressions of sin, just as you're not going to find individuals that don't have expressions of sin. And just as we allow the grace of God to motivate us forward, we must allow the grace of God to motivate us to abide in communities. And it's amazing to me that the grace that we allow God to give us and that we accept on a daily basis in our relationship with God, we do not give to the communities we abide in. That somehow we want the church to be different than we treat ourselves and we treat our closest relationships. We want the church to be different than how we treat our marriages or how we treat our families, and our relatives. You know, people uh, try to win a million dollars by staying on an island, like shows like Survivor, right? They try to be a good person for a week so they can win a million dollars, and they can't do it. They can't keep the, <laughs> the bad attributes of their personality from coming out. And this is for selfish reasons to win a million dollars, and yet somehow we think we can abide in the church without having conflict. Ministry is difficult. Life is difficult. And in community, it's only going to get more difficult. And I want to read something from my book for this, uh, page 191 from the Community of God. And I just want to talk about the, the fact that we must give up on the idea of the perfect community. Because we're not going to find a perfect community. In New Testament times, people could not choose to enter in and out of Christian community. Once they became a Christian... They were usually disowned or rejected by their own families. In their public water baptism, they died to their old life and entered into a new one centered on Christ and his church. It was immediately both an individual and a group proclamation. In many ways, it resembled a wedding vow. As they confessed their faith in Christ, they committed to abiding with and loving this new community, regardless of what conflicts and trials would come. If we are to grow in that same understanding of Christ-centered relationships, we too must consider the sacred vow of fully surrendering to the gift of the church. 
Yielding may require that we stop looking for the absence of conflict and start looking for opportunities to grow in our ability to love people unconditionally through every season of life. You see, when people became Christians in the New Testament time and they were baptized, they were disowned by their families. It was an all-or-nothing decision. They became married to the church. They had to say, we have to learn how to abide with this church because there's no going home. There's no going back. We've accepted Christ, and in accepting Christ, we've been disowned by our family. We've been cast out of our family. We no longer have income. We no longer have land. We may no longer even have a marriage. We only have Christ, and we only have Christ's community, and there's no way to turn back. It's very much similar to Muslim conversions in worlds that are hostile to Christianity today. So they had to learn how to abide in these communities because there literally was no community to go back to. Christianity thrived in such environments. Yet in our world, we think, well, maybe just something a little better is what I need, and then I'd be able to be content and okay. I know these things sound harsh. I'm not trying to excuse sinful communities. I'm not saying that we should abide in abusive communities. In fact, I have further shows where we'll talk about fleeing from abusive communities. But here's the reality. Just as any marriage has big problems and yet you commit to that marriage because there's a covenantal relationship in that marriage, and just as parenting is really difficult and you don't continue to love your kids because it's easy and just because relationship with your brothers and sisters is not easy but you continue to relate with your brothers and sisters because they are truly brothers and sisters and just because relating with your parents is not easy but you continue to relate with them because they're your parents it's the same in the church as well we must abandon the myth of the perfect church secondly if we're going to grow in community, we need to bring the individual back into community. And what I mean by this is we must abandon this reality of talking about the individual first and the community second. I've talked about this in, in the weeks leading up to this, and the scripture shows this again and again. It's always about the individual and the community. It's never about the individual first and then the community. We need to abandon the idea that it's first get your life complete and then you can think about the larger expression of the community of God. Both are just as important. The language, the language we use is incredibly important. And, and I just want to read on this again because I want to be very clear on what I mean by this. And I've spent weeks talking about this. But the way we talk about salvation, discipleship, evangelism is not biblical. The Bible always talks about the community as much as it talks about the individual. In fact, it often talks far more about the community implications of our salvation, of discipleship, of evangelism, than the individual needs. So in our churches, when we talk about anything, when we talk about why you need Christ, why you need to read your Bible, why you need to pray, we need to talk about the community. In page 194 of the book, I speak about this in some detail. First, the language we use should include the reason for community and the implications for who we are and what we do as Christians. 
When we speak about salvation, we should describe both personal salvation and being adopted into the family of God, who will bless all the families of the earth. We should describe discipleship as more than just personal growth, but as a way of connecting oneself to the larger, fuller expression of the body of Christ. Communion is not just about personal sins, but about considering the needs and relationships within the larger community. Remember, Paul said that if you don't, or you're not concerned with the needs of the body of Christ, you're not even celebrating the Lord's Supper. Here, let me go back to the book. Communion is not just about personal sins, but about considering the needs and relationships within the larger community. Gathering together is not merely a way to find individual spiritual food, but a way to become more fully human as we discover how to abide in love and unity with the people God has entrusted to our care. Most importantly, spiritual growth is the opening of oneself to the larger expression of the body of Christ. Ultimately, when we speak this way, growth becomes not about me, but about God's church. Perhaps a Christian might better say that my growth and spiritual development is intertwined with the growth and spiritual development of those around me. The believer never says me first and the rest of the body second. Instead, the church is always us, in Christ, led by the Spirit, together on a journey of mutual spiritual growth. This means when we talk about things like Bible studies, we don't say, you need to get involved in a Bible study so you'll grow spiritually. We say, we need to get involved in a Bible study because it's good for us. It's not about me. It's about us. We testify, why do you need to participate in giving? Not so your finances can grow, not so you can do better in your marriage, but for us. The reason you need to get in a small group is it will benefit us. Even our testimonies are so individualistically focused. In a small church or a normal-sized church, there's usually only one women's group or one men's group or one youth group. And if you're going to that group to meet, have your needs met, it's difficult because it's a small group and you might go to the group and maybe that week there's one man who spends the whole time talking about an ugly divorce that he's getting over or there's one woman talking about struggling with her mental illness and maybe you don't want to spend your time listening to someone else talk about their divorce or their mental illness. Maybe you want it to be about your needs and if you think community is about your needs, you won't go to that group. But if you think community is about us, then you will say that was a wonderful gathering to go to because it's just as important to meet the needs of someone else as it is for your needs to be met. And you will grow in understanding who God is and who you are in serving someone else as much or more than having your needs met in that meeting. And the church will be structured around us versus my needs, my wants, my dreams, my visions, my gifts, my time, my money. We must radically change the language we use. We must abandon the myth of the perfect church, number one. Number two, we must bring the individual back into community. And number three, we must focus more attention on abiding. Less attention on how right we are in our theology and more attention on how we abide in community with our theology. In our information age, in our Twitter age, in our Facebook age, 
We're so concerned with the rightness of our language, with the rightness of our theology, but we aren't as concerned with how we live out that theology in community. And I believe, frankly, if you cannot live your theology out in community, then it's pretty worthless. The integrity of your scripture-themed theology is tested in the ability to live it out in community. The integrity of your doctrine is tested in the ability to live it out in community. And some people have such worthy doctrine that they can live it out in no community. They're so pure in their doctrine that they abide by themselves with their perfect edicts and their perfect theology and their perfect proclamations, yet they cannot get along with anyone. That is not perfect theology. That is broken theology. Theology is relational, and the ability to have good theology is the ability to live your theology out in relationship. Jesus Christ is expressed not as theology, but as incarnation, God with us, in the flesh, dwelling with us. The New Testament is not a testament dropped from the sky, but the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. It's the same with us. The integrity of what God has taught us is expressed in our ability to live out that expression, those teachings in community. And if your theology makes you a jerk, then it's not good theology. And if your theology makes it so that you cannot abide with people, then it's terrible theology. Jesus was able to go into communities and abide with people. Yes, people rejected him. Yes, people turned away from him. Yes, it led to a cross. But other people also came to him and accepted his teaching and followed him, and there was fruit to it. I even think about uh, John the Baptist, right? You'll see the prophets out there. You ever see the person like, I'm like John the Baptist. I'm just telling it like it is. Well, people went and found John the Baptist. He was out in the wilderness, but people actually went to John the Baptist to hear him speak. He wasn't some guy writing letters and mailing them to churches. If God has given you a pure theology, you're going to be able to take it into community and lives will be transformed, and people will be able to abide with you. But if no one can abide with you, or you can abide with no one, that's a sign that there's a brokenness in your theology. And so often we spend so much time rallying around our perfect theologies when we need to learn how to love. And isn't that what the Scripture focuses on? Isn't that what John, excuse me, isn't that what well, John talks about, right? Love, the sign that you've been brought from death to life is that you love your brother. Isn't that kind of the key element? Isn't that what Paul talks about? Paul says that if you do not love, you're a worthless gong or clanging cymbal. That you can have a wonderful theology of faith, but if you're not loving, you're nothing. You're nothing without love. You don't, if you don't have love, your theology is nothing. Who cares? It's not Christ. If there's no love in it, it's not Christ. It's not Christ. It's not Christ. If there's no love in it, it's not Christ. It's not Christ is not in it if there's no love. So for churches, for Christians, we must learn to abide in community, in love, with the fruit of the Spirit, walking through conflicts, expressing the love of God so that our theology can be tested It's so easy to have a pure theology in isolation. It's so easy to be right 
when no one else is in the room. But in relationship, man, that's hard. In relationship, that's a challenge. When you love people, when you care about people, when you want to be in community, when you don't want them to leave, when it's not just about me being right, but me being reconciling and caring about the people who are with me and wanting to abide with them and wanting to eat with them and wanting to have communion with them and caring about them and their family and their, their kids and their parents and, and actually caring about them as human beings, then I'm going to care about how I express my theology. But if I don't care about them as human beings and I don't care to abide with them, and it doesn't matter that we're going to be hugging each other on Sunday or Wednesday night, if that doesn't matter, then I'll just spew my theology and the rightness of my theology and forget about the community of God. God didn't shout from the heavens, love one another. He expressed it in relationship. He embraced the apostles. He embraced those that he ministered to. And then he he embraced us through the cross. There's no such thing as a perfect church. Jesus Christ is the perfect one, and he works out his perfection through us imperfect people as we gather together, led by the Holy Spirit, as best as we know how, to be his body on earth. We must abandon the myth of the perfect church, find a way to abide with each other in love through conflict so that we can be expressions of a fuller expression of God's love than just individual pursuits. We must understand that everything, salvation, discipleship, evangelism, Pentecost, every teaching in Scripture has a community and an individual perspective. And if we put the individual above the community, we do harm to the message of the gospel. All right, love you guys. I'd love it if you could delve deeper into this. You can buy my book, The Community of God, A Theology of the Church from a Reluctant Pastor uh, at Amazon. There's an audible version as well. Uh, You can go to my website, fairlyspiritual.org. It's fairlyspiritual.org. You can get the book for free, actually, through Audible. If you've never signed up for Audible before and this is your first download, you'll get it for free. So you can get a free membership and download it for free. But most importantly, make room for the Lord. He knows you by name. He loves you dearly. He's called all of us to grow in community. This theme song is written and performed by by my brother, Dan Bursch. Check out his music on iTunes. I'll see you next time.